What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Almost Familiar. This is Wes Johnson here hanging out with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, we have quite the guest this show, don't we? We sure do. Today we're talking to Whit Hawkins, who is the former production manager for Pretty Lights and Bass Nectar, and he is the current production manager for STS9, and he is also Daily Bread's manager. So we've talked about it before, but you know, this is a very brand new podcast, new experience for us. So, you know, when we get anybody that reaches out to us saying that they're listening, we're like, oh my gosh, like incredible people are listening. Like, that's so cool. And it kind of was amplified even more so because we were reached out to by the one and only Whit Hawkins, who's a guy who just knows so much and has so many incredible behind the scenes stories from some of your favorite artists, particularly like us, you know, like Elizabeth and I both love PL, Bass Nectar and Sound Tribe. And this is a guy who's been with them for a long time in certain aspects of his life and just learning the ins and outs of some of the, our favorite moments, you know, some of it were stuff we were at and some of it's stuff I definitely wish we were at. Yeah, and it's it was just so beautiful to get the additional context for it. And when we were recording it and when we were editing it, I was just smiling the whole time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember he was telling us the story of the witness break, which a lot of us PL kids are very familiar with and how that kind of came to fruition and learning about that from him, who it's about, you know, I remember my cheeks, like I'm even thinking about it now, my cheeks are starting to tense up and smile just as big. So it was really cool. And then, you know, Witt's just another great guy in the industry and his whole mentality of just doing dope shit with your friends is just a mentality that I'm all on board with. So it was really great to meet another guy in the scene just doing his absolute best because he loves it. Yeah, and I think that mentality is really trickled down in a variety of ways, but it's something that we've brought intentionally to this podcast, too. It's Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a bad motto to live by. So if you're in a spot where you don't know what you're doing, just lean in on doing dope shit with your friends. It's not going to lead you astray. And one of the best parts about this whole experience of talking to Wit was that he has already offered to come back to the podcast and do a part two with us, which is so nice and so generous. And so we're really grateful for that. But because this is fully intended to be a community-driven project, we would love to encourage those of you listening to please submit any questions that you have for him. You can reach us at almostfamiliarpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on our social media platforms and message us on there. We are Almost Familiar Pod on Instagram, and we are Almost Familiar on Facebook. So by the time you guys are here in this episode, it will be January 1st, the start of a brand new year. So this will be our first episode of the new year. So happy new year, everybody. We made it through 2020 and I don't know what 2021 is going to bring, but we'll figure it out together. And uh, I guess without further ado, we can get familiar with this week's guest, Whit Hawkins. really enjoy what you guys have been doing i've had fun listening to your episodes oh thanks man speaking candidly to people that i that i'm friends with about something that's i'm so intimately involved in it's nice it's a nice change to get some perspective from people outside of the circle you know what i mean yeah absolutely like an in-depth way because it's like one thing when you talk to some folks you know in passing or you meet at a party or at a show or whatever but like there's an hour and a half to two hours of like nice conversation with people that aren't on this side of the barricade yeah i'm so glad to hear that man like glad that's how it's being perceived because it feels great on this end of it 
Yeah, and thank you so much for reaching out because you you were definitely on our list of, of people to reach out to. So you you kind of beat us to it, but it was it was so nice what you said when you messaged us. You were, I think you said thank you for illuminating via the podcast, and that that just really meant a lot. We love you know we love hearing from people, but it was it was just a really nice comment. I'm glad you enjoyed that. That's um when the Pretty Lights team sort of adopted that phrase, uh, or you know for the Illuminators program and stuff. It sort of encapsulated a lot of like our overall vision of what we intended for that program to be. And also, you know, uh, for what the overall pretty lights vision is when Derek started it, you know? And so I, I, we really sort of take into that phrase. So I don't use it lightly. Yeah. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on what that vision is? Sure. Not a problem. We started, this is starting then. Yeah. We're going yeah, now. Yeah. Huh? I've been recording. I think legally I, I'm in California and I think legally I'm supposed to tell you guys like I'm recording now. I don't think you've ever said that before. So I don't know what that means for the past, but we're probably going to get in trouble, but it's okay. <laughs> probably not big time enough to get in trouble yet, but we'll see. Maybe someday. I hope someday we get in trouble. Me too. Good trouble. Yeah. Good, Good trouble. Of course. John Lewis said. So cool. So sorry. What was the, what was the question? I wasn't. The, the question was, could you elaborate a little bit on what that vision surrounding uh, when you kind of like recontextualize the term illuminating? What's, what's the, what's the vision for that within the pretty lights context? Sure. I mean, that, that's something that uh, Derek sort of started w- with where the name came from, at least my understanding of it was like, it wasn't just about the light show as so many people, you know, that are new to it understand, but it's about uh, finding the, the moments in everyday life that inspire you and, uh, excite you about being alive in the world and exploring your space and your world and, and uh, being a part of it. That's what you should come and see the pretty lights like those were to him or what the pretty lights were. So in illuminating, I think the, uh, the overarching arching vision was to like provide uh, showcase those moments to other people and to, you know, the fans and the crew and everyone involved uh, in a way that's like, hey, we're inspiring, and these are the these are the moments that make it worthwhile. So when we sort of we call it the Illuminators is the program. It wasn't just like people that give out uh, water to fans at the show. It was like the uh, while that was one of their duties, it was also like they they gave back to their community in a lot of great ways. They you know would do some charity work. They would provide assistance to fans. They would basically bring things to the show that would add to the experience, right? And we thought that that was like helping to illuminate those moments that make things inspiring and joyful and living. And so that sort of phrase has sort of come to mean that as a whole to some of us just in general, illuminating being like, Hey, here's, here's, it's like an old grateful dead lyric. Uh, Sometimes you get shown the light in the strangest of places if you look at it right. You know? So it's like illuminating. It's like, here's look at it this way. Like we provide the source to let you look at that moment to be inspired. And that's probably, so that's probably me conceptualizing it more so than other people might have, but it definitely leaves itself open to interpretation. We just dove right into like the metaphysical. There's no like, hey, <laughs> tell us about your, your past. It was like, talk, talk to me about illuminating. I like that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. We like to, we like to jump right into it. No small talk. I have these Ukrainian friends that learned English as a second language and they said that they had to literally learn what small talk was because it's just like not a thing in their language. So I, I try to adapt that a little bit from them. And I actually have all these like super awesome, like in-depth conversations with them. And I think it's because they're not about the small talk bullshit and they'll literally call people out too. They're like, no, no, no. I think that's great. I love that. Yeah. Now, what I'm curious to know is, I mean, first off, I love that the Pretty Lights crew as a whole is all on board with the vision. 
What is it that drew you to working with Pretty Lights? How did that become a thing for you? So I have always been about um, my company, Hawks Nest Music. My motto is do dope shit with your friends. And that's literally what I've decided to build my whole career around is like, how can I do something that I love and make it a living and not only do something that I love, but do it with my friends because that makes it that much more inspiring and fulfilling. Right. Um, and so back when I started my career, I was already doing some dope shit with my friends and we started a company called music matters. Uh, out of Atlanta, and we were doing, uh, we were a production company, they still are a production company, I'm no longer with them, but they're still very close friends, but it was me and Michael Smalley, and, and uh, who does, you may be familiar with him, and then some stuff, Trevor Bone, and our buddy Aaron Serrero, and we started seeing that in Athens, Georgia, where UGA is, it's a big party town, but nobody was really bringing like electronic music out there, and we were super into it, so we figured, hey, why don't we showcase our new company and what we can do with our lighting and audio and gain some clients and throw our own parties and bring the music that we like out here. So we started bringing, we brought Bass Nectar early on. We brought Derek Pretty Lights early on. Um, and from there it was before, like we paid, he played in like a 400 person venue and we paid him very little in a plane flight, you know, like we had seen him open up for someone at a Sector 9 after party out here in Colorado as like the first of five and we're like that is dope we want that to come to our thing so from that point on like we became friends and became buddies and we kept up with each other over the years and then as i started touring with bass nectar pretty lights and bass nectar ran in a lot of the same circles played a lot of the same events were a lot of the same spots on bills and things and i had also become friends with, with greg ellis the laser shark and phil salvaggio through pretty lights as a promoter and then we kept running into them um you know touring with bass nectar and towards the end of my relationship with the bass nectar camp when i was looking to go do something else derek literally called me and said hey man i'm here you're looking to go do something else how about you just come work with your friends and i was like you know what that's all i ever want to do so that's it was literally a phone call from derek and then phil and greg and i just jumped right in like they were like hey yeah what's our guy come on in do the thing so as far as what drew me to it, to working with him, it was a phone call from him said, we're your friends. Don't you want to work with your friends, which is a rare opportunity. And then as far as like what drew me to working with him musically was early on, like I said, we had seen him open. I believe it was at like the Gothic in Denver. We had flown out from Atlanta to do lighting and sound for a sector nine after party. And he was the local, him and Corey was the drummer at the time, were the local band on the bill. And we were just blown away. It was some stuff we'd never really heard before. It was a new style of stuff. And we immediately went and like checked out, I think, filling up the city skies had just come out for free on whatever that service was where you could download all the things for free. And so musically, it was like a, his ability to evoke emotion through sample collaging and and head nutting hip-hop beats which was different than what was happening in the electronic world at the time and it sort of had a lot of the same emotive crossover feel of the stuff that we were i was really into musically as far as the jam bands and the feelings i got from them and what are some of those jam bands oh sure well i mean i come from much like phil and greg we, i come from the fish world um in the early 90s i was still in high school and they were like the cool band that everybody's older brother in college was listening to, you know, 
Uh, and then I read the electric Kool-Aid acid test and started listening to the Grateful Dead. And then, and then from there, it sort of, you know, springboards into outside of the jam band world. Both of those bands draw from so many different influences that you start to go down a rabbit hole of um, discovering what, the, what, what inspired them. And then you can go deeper and deeper and you really open up a whole new world of music and appreciation for different styles of music. But those are the ones I come from. And then uh, Sector 9 is from Atlanta, which is where I'm from originally. And they were coming up at the same time that I was getting my feet wet in the, in the music, the local music scene. Um, so I saw a bunch, a bunch of their stuff and then to actually work with them now, um, their production manager now and tour with them. So it's been a full circle stuff, which is great. Uh, and then they introduced me by way of trading gigs, the disco biscuits from up North in Philly. And I think that I had always been listening to electronic music separately like there was a big drum and bass scene in Atlanta and I love drum and bass. There was, you know, house music was still happening at, at raves in like the late nineties, early two thousands. And I was going to those and I saw a lot of like cross pollination of the, of the ideas of the cultures, but not a lot of actual fan base pollinations. But then when sector nine and the disco biscuits came along and started doing jam tronica or live tronica or whatever you want to call it, I had this revelation like you can do both of these things. You can play electronic music and play jam music and meld them together and was sort of blown away by the possibilities of that. And so, you know, then the biscuits started doing camp Bisco and really, really forcing that on, not forcing it on people in a bad way, but like there was one of the first U S festivals where you would see, you know, jam top tier jam bands and then, and then some rock bands like ween and then also see, you know, bass nectar and pretty lights and, Skrillex and Fever Corporation all on the same bill. And, and it was like, this will work. So that was probably a much longer winded answer than you were asking for. You just wanted me to list bands, but there you go. No, man, that's perfect. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to hear just how bands like STS9 and the Disco Biscuits really led to what Wes and I have been experiencing since we joined the scene about 10 years ago each. Um, and it, it's always been a hybrid culture for us but it must've been really cool for you to just watch that evolution happen. Yeah, it, it really was because um, fish had already been established and were already a thing, you know, a big arena thing by the time I got to run to them, um, which was, I guess, 96 was my first show. So I was, you know, still in high school, but they were playing arenas at that point. And there was always the underground nature of the electronic thing that was going on in Atlanta. Like you would have to like, get the address to the rave and find it and go to the, you know, meet the guy in the parking lot to get the password for the door. It was before it was like, really, if you didn't want to go to the club clubs, which I've always never been a fan of. And there was definitely a feeling of an underground nature. And, and then when the sector nine and the biscuits started happening, I really felt like that I was on the front end of that, like on the vanguard of fanship of that, I guess, because they literally were playing in people's backyards at when I was sneaking out of my parents' house to go see them, you know, they were a few years older than me and I was 17, 18 sneaking out to go see them and, and really felt like this was my fish, if you will, that I was like, I was here from the jump and I can watch it evolve. And then, to, and then to see those two worlds of the underground electronic culture melding musically with this jam band culture and then the crossover of the fans, it really felt like I was at the nexus of all of that in some strange way as opposed to seeing it happen from the outside. And it was very cool to like, to, to be a part of that. Yeah. And what do you think about how electronic music just completely blew up like 10 years ago? Like how did that change the experience for you? 
Well, when it went, I mean, we always knew that it was headed in that trajectory to some extent. When electronic music went main stage, I guess, it, there's always, you're always going to get that influx of fans that are there for the party and less for the, the other aspects of the concert experience. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. I think that uh, having exposure of the music to a wider fan base is fantastic. And it brings, it gives the opportunity people that might not discover that sort of thing on their own or, or have been indoctrinated by an older brother to like actually, or whatever, but have actually witness it at a festival and experience for themselves. I think that's a a good thing. Um, I think that it, it changed my experience in that at the point which that was already happening, I was already on this side of the barricade is the phrase that we use. Like I was already working the concerts and helping facilitate the production of the concerts and come up with the concepts of the production and the presentation of the shows. So the way it changed my experience was that it was no longer, Hey, every show we can pretty much do whatever we want with, as long as we're servicing what we feel like is the art and our, you know, our fans, we now had to go, okay, well now this is a festival main stage festival set. Like, what do we play to not only make sure that the fans are hardcores are happy, but also maybe win over some new fans or, or, you know, uh, be able to be invited back next year. So we have to adjust the set list to play some more of the, the bangers or the hits as opposed to the deeper cuts and like also have to bring less of our own production to it and utilize more of the festival stuff. So my experience changed in that when it blew up artists I was working with at the time, all of a sudden became more in demand um, to play bigger sides things, which was were opportunities we had we took, and it took us away a little bit from doing you know only our vision, but we knew that ultimately it would lead to the ability to do more of our stuff down the road, right because we could grow we could grow the reach a little bit, which would enable us to do more of what we wanted later. That makes a lot of sense, and I'm curious to hear your observations, having worked with so many different artists in the scene, of how the fan bases evolved, not only from the beginning, but also once they started to just completely blow up, like a bass nectar, or I don't know, in my opinion, on, on my side of the barricade, um, <laughs> you know, ST- I'm trying to blur those lines, so it's like, it's, it's not meant to be like a, a phrase that's like us versus them, but the it's about a perception more than anything. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I just didn't want to like be like, you're over there and we're over here and screw you guys. That's not, the no, point. I know it's just cool. I know it's, it's all good. But, um, so I'm just, I'm just curious to hear your, just your observations of how the fan bases have grown for some of the artists that you've worked with. Cause I imagine once they get bigger and you get so many more people in it, it just affects the intimacy and it can sometimes get toxic as I've seen with a couple fan bases here and there within the electronic music community. So just curious to hear um, your experience of that, of just watching fan bases grow. I, well, first of all, they get younger. <laughs> when, when, when I started working with some of these artists with a bass nectar or with a pretty lights or with a, um, I guess we'll stick with those two since that's the realm we're in, but I was a fan, right? And all, all the fans around me were my age. And we're coming from similar backgrounds, you know, uh, and it felt like there was a shared history there in a way that our commonality more so than history, not like an intimate history, but like, oh, you, you are similar to me, right? And you're in the age group and, and probably socioeconomic status to some extent. And everywhere I would go around the region, it felt that way. 
Um, and as time went on and the, the fan bases grew, more and more people would be younger people, um, younger than me. And I know that's just a nature of time and, and, and how human growth works. People are going to get older and move on with their lives and do other things. And, and the younger crowd's going to come in. So that's the first thing I noticed, like as a stark reality, standing on the stage, like working behind the soundboard, or the monitor board or whatever. Like I used to look out and see people that look like me. And now I look out and see people that look like, you know, someone's little sister because they are right. So that was the first like stark thing for me to notice. And the second thing to touch on, I guess you talked about the toxicity. I, that's going to be true of any sort of culture that is open-minded and accepting uh, and non-judgmental for the most part is that the more people you allow into it, there's going to be bad actors that take advantage of that willingness to share and be open. There's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. There's actually a podcast that Payne Lindsay's doing right now. The guy that did the up and vanished stuff. He's doing one called dead and gone, which is about unsolved murders on grateful dead tour. Uh, and that's something that he was surprised to find out. He's not from the scene really. He was just intrigued by it. And he was surprised to find out that there, that, you know, somebody, some culture that was known as so hippie and free loving and peace and, and all of that would have so many grisly acts of violence in it. And that was something that one of the experts, I, I'm not sure if you can call them experts, but, Grateful Dead scene historians said was that there's going to be bad actors anytime that you allow for openness and non-judgmental stuff to to go on on a, on a widespread scale is like there's going to be people that come in and take advantage of that. So I don't think that it's necessarily something that's unique to this scene uh, that, that you guys are coming from. And it's unfortunate, but I think that those, the toxicity of it is far less uh, far less than the positivity on the, of the side of it. And a lot of times the toxicity gets amplified because of the current climate of social media. It's easier to be a keyboard warrior than it is to, you know, not, I suppose. How did the toxicity look when social media wasn't so prevalent? There was more of a bubble, like you and your team and your people were would do the do the shows and the tours and the whatever together right which still happens okay but your contact wasn't like you didn't know six thousand other people at the show you knew like a few hundred other people at the show at most that you'd met over the years right and you only sort of associated with those people that had that you would want in your bubble right so you didn't really see the toxicity as up in front and in your face and you were like oh we'll just avoid that nonsense or like oh those we don't want to go over to that area because those people with those flags at the, at the lot, we've heard stories about that. Right. And there was less judging of uh, on a, in a public uh, public's forum. Right. So it wasn't as in your face, but it still was there and you knew it was there. Uh, it just didn't get amplified. So I've done a lot of research, not a lot, but I've, I've done some research about the grateful dead and a little bit about fish as well. And one thing I've noticed about those communities is that it, it kind of seems like there's some unspoken rules there. And I just wonder if you have a sense of not only how they get upheld and established, but if you think that the the community today has their own unspoken ro- rules, or if we even pulled some from the Fish and Grateful Dead communities. Um, I, you know, 
if you spoke to some of my friends about this, they would be able to list the unspoken rules for you. And they're big into that, but that's not, I think the overwhelming theme is something that Mickey Hart said at the end of the GD 50 shows. It was just be kind. I think that's really it. Be kind, which is essentially the golden rule, which permeates all sorts of Eastern and Western religions is, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. And that's really the, the main unspoken rule. Um, as far as how to act and behave. So it sort of is a don't, I guess that's really I can sum it up, but if there's, as far as other unspoken rules, there's like technicalities and things like don't wear the, don't wear the shirt from that show at the show, you know? And like, don't, I mean, there's silly stuff like that. And I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to. If you're referring more to like cultural, cultural norms. Either, honestly. I do know that like, we definitely, uh, when I say we, so when I was working, when I first started working with Base Nectar, it was myself and Michael Smalley and our friend Trevor Bone. And we had been very close friends before we were working together. And we sort of came together as a package to start working with them. And we were all three from the fish world. And we sort of saw the value in taking some of our favorite things from the fish world and fish culture and applying it to the electronic culture. And that wasn't necessarily the case with electronic artists at the time. They didn't understand that culture. And I remember talking about some of those unspoken rules, like the very first time the bass nectar did a two night run was the tabernacle in Atlanta. And we sort of had to convince him us and his management at the time to convince him and to do it. And he was concerned that, you know, fans wouldn't come to two nights and like, that's not what DJs did. And he was very much of the DJ world. And we were like, no, no, you've got this culture going. This is a valuable thing. And then he was like, okay, so what does that mean? And we told him like, well, one of the rules is you can't play the same song both nights, right? Like if it's in the set night one, it can't be in the set night two. And at the time, like Basshead was, was really big. And he was like, well, what about the people that only can come to one night and they want to come because they want to hear the single. Like when you go to see a DJ, at DJ world or whatever at the DJ club, like you want to hear that hit and that banger. And I was like, okay, we were, you know, had to convince him like, it's okay to not do that. And that these people will respect that and appreciate that. And in fact, they'll, you know, latch onto that more so than if you played it twice. And that was one of those unspoken rules that was from an artistic standpoint that we just sort of had to massage into the situation in an interesting way. I do also remember from this is a fun story from that, that run, he was very concerned about the fans that couldn't get a ticket to new year's and could only come the first night that they would feel, um, gypped in a way that they didn't get to experience the sort of the ball drop and the countdown and the whole new year's thing. And we had this big new year's gag planned, and, you know, to us as jam band fans, we were like, well, that's the deal. Like, you get that on New Year's. And if you miss it out, you missed out, right? And he was like, well, no, let's do something special to make this first night people feel validated and included in the community if we're going to talk about, you know, including building a culture and a community. And we're like, all right, what do you got in mind? So we did a fake countdown where we made them can't we led the audience in a countdown like three different times from 10 to one and told them we were just practicing for tomorrow. And then on the last one, we dropped some beach balls, but didn't do this full giant drop. Right. And so they were like, Oh, that was neat. We got a mini drop. But on top of that, I had set up microphones around the venue and on the stage, like I think six of them to capture the audience doing the countdown. 
And then right after the end of the set, like bass nectar and I went back to his dressing room and locked the door and I dumped the audio from my computer of the mic of the mics of the audience singing or saying the numbers and put it into his system. The two of us edited and mixed it together with the drop for the next night for the actual new year's drop so that the audio that the fans were hearing through the PA of the countdown was the audience from the night before so that they were included in the night of the New Year's. That is so fucking cool. I love that. That's really cool. Wow. And you and your team are the people behind the multi-night bass nectar runs. Like, that's crazy. I'm grateful for that. Just me. There was a a team of people, sure. Yeah. No doubt about it. Now, my question about that specifically is, it's really cool to hear there's that openness of communication between the crew and the artists in that situation. Do you think that exists when there's not like an actual sense of community between the artists and their crew? Uh, I don't know because I have, like I said earlier, built my entire career about around doing dope shit with my friends and have been fortunate enough to, to be in a situation where that's all I've ever had to do. I mean, not all, like I've done some one-offs with in different scenarios where that wasn't the case, but I didn't approach it with that. Like looking for that, I approach it like I'm here to do this job and I'll do it and I'll be done. But I could, you know, I, I choose not to go chase the money necessarily where I'm sure that, I mean, there definitely were times where I could have gone in different career path using the same skill set, and it had been more lucrative for me, but I, that's not as fulfilling. So I look for opportunities to where I have that open communication and I'm part of the artistic process instead of just being, you know, oh, you're the sound guy or you're the designer, you're the whatever. And I think that as you progress through that you can find you can find places to make that work where that is the relationship that you're after so I, does it exist everywhere it certainly doesn't exist everywhere no do i think it's unique to artists that have a quote community around them as far as like a, a dedicated fan base where there's a culture built in i don't think it's unique to that no but i do think that um you're more apt to find it there than other places. I mean, one of my good friends who I was talking about earlier and who was on base next year with us, Michael Smalley, he, he does, he's Mariah Carey's like creative director now. And like, just from hanging out with him, he, he tells me those same stories. He's like, yeah, like I'm involved in the creative decisions. And like, there's that open communication, which is a far cry musically and sonically and culture wise from what we were doing together with base nectar to that. But he, again, is one of those people that seeks out, like, how do I find, that's what's fulfilling to him. So how do I find somewhere where that is that sort of relationship? So who have you felt most empowered working with so far? Oh, man, that's tough. I I think that to some extent, it's not a competition. Everyone's empowered me in their own ways, right? And so there's been times when I felt super empowered by an artist and times when I've felt less empowered by that same artist. Um, But it's a give and take. And ultimately, like, you're in service of their art for the most part, right? Like, I'm not going to be the one that's going to sell the tickets in order to keep the train rolling and the art being able to be created. But I can help in cultivating that experience in a positive way. And sometimes if they're, you know, hey, I want to cultivate this all, or I want to do this particular thing all by myself and not empower you to do that. That's their prerogative and you learn to you know, accept it. But it's never been a situation where there isn't, the pendulum didn't swing back the other way to, to re-empower me or whatever. So I think that I've found joy in 
and empowerment with 99.9% of every artist I've ever, ever worked with. And I think that's part of why I get brought into these teams though, too, is because they know that that's what I'm looking for. And I've been able to build on that reputation. So I don't think there's like a, an answer of who's empowered me the most by any means. Um, they've all had their, their moments. That's great to hear. Um, do you have a favorite or rather, do you have something you're most proud of from working with uh, each of the artists you've mentioned so far, like Bass Nectar? Maybe it was that moment you just shared, but Bass Nectar, Pretty Lights, STS9, just something you're the most proud of from your time with them? Uh, yeah, I got a lot of things that I'm super proud of, but the, I, I guess I guess the ones I could tell you about would be, from each of those camps, the two that maybe meant the most to me personally, I guess. The first one was uh, my very first arena show was at the first bank center in Broomfield. It was also the first base center, um, which is where the name came from. The place was called first bank center. So we changed it to first base center. And then when we started doing more of them, we were like, well, it's just the second base center and the third base center. Wow. Sequentially. <laughs> but that was also happened to be on my birthday and it was in the state where I was living at the time, you know, and so my wife, or now my wife, was she, yeah, that was 20. I don't believe we were married yet. I can't recall the year. Either way, um, my wife was able to come and share that with me. Uh, and I was doing it with two of my, you know, really close friends. And I like, the people that we had rented a lot of the equipment from were people that I had known from the Sector 9 era. Like they started a, a production company called Brown Note Productions. It sort of was built up with Sector 9. So, and I had had business dealings with them in the past and, we all sort of grew together in the same, you know, small circle of stuff. And so it really felt like a culmination of like, we did this together and like we kept our heads down and believed in what we wanted to believe in and grinded it out and, and, and we're worked hard and like now it's all paying off and we've reached that next echelon of production that we have always wanted to be at and to have my wife there and my friends there in the state of, that I live in and, it was really a super fun time. And then that energy was reciprocated by the, the people around me in the audience and outside on lot during the, sh before the show and after the show. And like, it was, there's always that special birthday energy too. So that was, that's one moment that really stood out for me. Um, I was also always really proud of the stuff that we did with like the dollar per base head stuff where we would like donate a dollar to a charity that was chosen from the fans. Like I always felt that, it was a good thing to utilize that platform in a positive way. Um, and as far as with pretty lights, the one that really sticks out to me in my mind was when we did the Colorado symphony orchestra show at red rocks. There was, there's a song called witness break, which is named after me. Um, we were writing the, not we, the band was writing those sort of songs as we went along on the tour that year at soundcheck, we would have, two and a half hour long sound checks and they would, they would work on these pieces and they were being named after like Greek and Roman gods and muses and stuff. And then they did one on my birthday at the Georgia theater in Athens, which is where I was the production manager for a long time and where I first met Derek when we brought him down to Athens to play. Um, and so that day they just named it after me cause it was my birthday and ended up being one that they really liked. And so when I got the set list of stuff that we were playing with the orchestra and witness break was on there, I was like, Oh, this is super rad. And then I was the liaison between the symphony orchestra and our crew. Right. So I had to go to their first chair violin and their director and like hand the sheet music out. 
and I'm handing out sheet music that says at the top, like witness break, and then has like the key and like the time signature and stuff. And I'm like, I'm handing this to someone that's trained their whole life to be a first chair violin person, person, player, musician. And we're about to perform it at one of the all time greatest venues in the world with some of my best friends. And it's got my name on the top of it. It's like this, like I was just beaming with reaffirmation and joy that like, I'm on the right path. I'm doing something right. Uh, and then when we played it and the crowd obviously going bananas, it was just probably one of my favorite moments I've ever had. Oh my God, I'm beaming myself too. That was, that is such a special story. My cheeks are <laughs> scorching right so now. Sore. I'm smiling so big for you. Wow. What a moment. It was super rad. And there's something about extra, spe- there's always something extra special about Red Rocks, always. And it brings out the best of the performers all the time. But from my perspective, I think 95 to 98% of the shows where I've been, Working there, I've been on the stage running monitors or stage managing or something as opposed to out at front of house. Um, and the way that that angle of the, the audience is, it's not like a normal arena where it's like slowly stadium stacked, you know, tiered. It's like a really, I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's a really steep angle of, of seating. And all of that energy is like pointed right at the stage and because it's so steep it feels like when you look out at it and it's coming down on you visually and and just vibe wise from people it's really sort of laser focused like right to that stage and it's so it it increases those vibes in a way that is different when you're on the stage does that make sense absolutely yeah we've both been to that venue we went together in fact it was my first time Wes I think you had been there before but yeah we were there for the the last Red Rock show and it was such a special experience on so many levels but I now I can kind of now that you've mentioned that and that whole like lasered in just the way that the production is designed I kind of understand a little bit more why it is the way that it is based on that venue alone just from what you just said sure I mean, Greg and his, his team of people and all the stuff they come up with always, always considers the environment. There's very rarely a time when it's like, we designed this show and we're just going to make it fit here. Like it's, and especially for Red Rock shows. And there is something unique about, you know, you're looking down on this thing. I think, I mean, when we did like the, the video floor, that was specifically because 85% of the audience can see the whole floor of the stage at Red Rocks. So we're like, why not utilize this as opposed to just having the stage be there? But they're really good at that, those guys. Now, when, you, when you're talking about the environment and trying to control as much of it as you can, I was talking to Elizabeth earlier, just thinking back to New Hampshire the second year where, you know, there's always... Gilbert, love that place. Yeah, man, beautiful venue, beautiful country. But, um, you know, it, an issue arose of some people with totems and you always hear people complain about totems at festivals, but at it, second night of New Hampshire, maybe it was the first night of the second year there was on the screen. I don't, I'm sure you were a part of it, but it said no totems. And it was so nice to be like, ah, oh, like, see, like on that side of the barricade, they hate it too. Yeah. That's the infamous no totem show. There's uh, Greg, Greg Ellis's podcast, bioluminescence has a whole 
episode where he speaks with our stage manager, Neil Nance, and our, our video, head of video, uh, Smokey Williams. And they go in depth about how that, that went down. So I w- would encourage you all to listen to it straight from the horse's mouth. But yes, we do not like it because it obscures it obs- we understand the purpose of them like to find your friends right i get that that's totally cool but when it starts to get like crazy elaborate and become a competition and like pull focus from what everything else is there for and then the taller they get and the wider they get like it does you know get in the way of meticulously planned production presentations for for people um and and yeah we don't we're not super into at least i'm not some people think it's great but our team is not super into it because of that exactly what you're saying like we spend a lot of time and energy and intent goes into these designs and the presentation and those things sort of take away from it if they're positioned wrong or in the way like they have their their place and their time and their use but like just the show's not about how crazy your totem can be and dancing around really i don't know that sounds selfish but it's true I'm a hundred percent with you. So if it's selfish, it is what it is. I have a question about um, working with the Colorado Symphony for that Red Rock show. I'm really curious about the process of how the Pretty Lights music was um, orchestrated and turned into sheet music um, for the orchestra. Um, were you involved with that at all? Yes, but on the on the other side of it, like it it came to me as sheet music for the rehearsals. Like that, Derek worked with with a, a composer, I believe, and the two of them wrote all of that stuff. Um, I was not involved in the writing of it or the creating the sheet music of it. My involvement was it came to me as sheet music and then at rehearsals, I would disseminate it to the correct people. And then there was a lot of reworking of the sheet music to make it work within the band elements because the, the, the Analog Future Band had not seen the sheet music, right? There was like written by Derek and I forget the composer's name, but that, the the musical side of it, I was not involved in up until we received it at rehearsals. And then the Analog Future Band, like Brian Coogan was a part of the band at that point and, and Borum Lee and uh, Benny Bloom and uh, Scott Flynn were really key in like communicating, speaking Derek, like, they'd be playing the songs and they're I want it to go like this here. And then they would be like, okay, symphony at bar six, we're going to repeat this phrasing and then it's going to go back to bar 14. And then when, after you repeat it once and they just, they would all take notes and notate it. And I would have to keep up with like what they were saying to each other and like write it all down and then get with the symphony leader afterwards and go, did you get all that for this piece? Did you get all that for this piece because the sheet music that was delivered wasn't how it was played. There was still, a creative part of it that happened at the rehearsals to like fine tune it. So as far as my involvement, that was, I was the note taker really, but it was, I was in the presence of some really amazing, fantastic musicians who could, I could watch that be created in front of my eyes and be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to add a rest on measure five. And then one person would say that and then they would run it one more time and the entire symphony would hit the rest because they're professionals have trained their whole life, you know? And it was, that was really cool. That was my involvement with it for the most part. And then, you know, the audio mixing of it was a different challenge altogether. I did a lot of that. Was that after the fact? No, I'm, well, there was definitely post, post audio mixing. I'm talking about specifically during the show. Um, The symphony all had to be able to hear what was happening, right? And the band's all on in-ears and we have this elaborate talkback system and sub mixing system and all this stuff. And then I also had a, 
separate recording rig that was separate than Phil's recording rig at the front of house with like different analog gear and stuff. But so I went from, you know, just having the, the analog future band and Derek on the stage to now I've got them and all of the symphony to make sure they're hearing what they need to hear. And there's all these extra mics on stage for all the different instruments. And it was sort of the, um, I had done orchestra work separately as an audio engineer in an orchestra setting. And I'd done obviously the pretty light stuff in a pretty light setting, but merging those two, it's like two different audio styles of audio, like organization really. And I had to like merge them together. It was interesting. It's a lot of fun. So you got to figure like you've got every individual artist that needs to hear what they want to hear. And then you also have to have Derek be able to communicate to just the symphony when he wants them to do something and doesn't want the band to stop playing or interfere with what they're doing then when to communicate to the band and then a way to communicate to just me when I need to do something for him on the technical side. And then also hearing each instrument the way that they need to hear it. Like the, you know, the drummer is going to want to hear his drums louder than the guitar shredding guitar solo or whatever. And the, the, you know, second chair cello is going to need to hear more of the violas during this part than he does the synthesizer that's out front or something. So it was a lot to, a lot to manage audio wise. And it was a lot of fun. It was a challenge. Wow. Well, I know who I'm calling if I ever convince the San Francisco Symphony to collaborate with an electronic musician because I, I work for them. And I every week I'm like, guys, we should do an electronic thing. We should collaborate or something. And they mostly ignore me. But if I get my way one day, I'm going to call you. Yeah, please do. That would be super fun. Symphonies just sound so good when you add them on top to like any kind of already existing musical iteration. You know, I, I was just watching clips of Lettuce's Colorado Symphony performance the other day. That was awesome. That was, that was beautiful. Yeah. Um, there was a moment in there where like it was right before The Force, I think, where it was like just the symphony and it was like this beautiful like melodic piece that sort of sounded Ooh. familiar. And like, then Deitch the kicks in. And then Deitch kicks in. Yes. Big, oh, it was amazing. I watched that exact clip. That's exactly what I was referencing. Deitch is a, a wizard, and people don't know that he's not just a drummer. He writes a boatload of that music. And he wrote a piece like two days before. It was like, oh, we got a symphony? I got this great idea. I was like, wow. That's, it was awesome. That was, that was the moment. You start, that was the moment where all of us like, were dressed up nice in our suits to be at the orchestra, like sort of came out of our chairs like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, We've been we've been reserved because that's what we're supposed to be, but this energy is what we're about. You can like hear people cheering. Them. Yeah, you can't sit down for that. Yeah, super rad moments. That's the kind of thing that like that's the kind of thing that you live for. Uh, as those moments and those feelings and that like just the way you just got excited about it, you know, and it's a shared experience, and we know how positive and wonderful and and full of energy that makes you. Those are the moments that I wanted to give back to people my whole life. And so I was like, how do I figure out how to do this forever? Um, and so, you know, because I, I have been on that side of the barricade a lot and still am a lot. And I, and I truly live for those moments and think they're wonderful. So being able to, to be a part of a team, any team that, especially one of your friends that spends their time and intent trying to create those moments for people is absolutely my purpose and worthwhile and fulfilling. So I wanted to go back to, for a second to the communication tool you were talking about because um, I was looking through your website, Hawk's Nest Music, a little bit before we chatted, and I noticed that you said that you developed the communication tool that pretty that the Pretty Lights Band uses. Could you um, just 
talk about that and how that was created and what exactly it does? Sure. It's it's not so much like a tool that's like a proprietary thing. It was just sort of a system. So it's it basically was elaborating on already existing monitor systems, right? So the band's on in-ears, right? Which means that they have earbuds in, essentially, that are molded to their ears and they have multiple speakers in them. Um, so that they can hear what they need to on stage as opposed to speaker wedges, which is just speakers pointed in front of them, which is the old school style of doing it. And Derek uses both. And so besides just being able to do that, everyone has a talkback mic, right? Which is like they can press a switch on the floor and it opens up their microphone and it allows them to talk to the other people in the in-ears. That's all sent to my monitor desk, my soundboard. Uh, And that's nothing that's like new or crazy. And then on top of that, we had the ability for Derek to talk just to me, we, to be like, I need to tell you some technical stuff. I don't want to interrupt the band right now, whatever. Um, that's also the mic that talks to Greg, if, if he and Greg want to talk to each other. And not, that's not that crazy either. What became interesting was that Derek was doing a lot of submixing and things on the stage where he's not, it wasn't just sending me DJ signal of his performance, right? He was like, I was sending signal from the microphones and instruments that were on the stage into my world, sending it back out to them in their ears to hear, but also then sending signal to another mixing desk in Derek's world where he then was pretty lightsing it up. I don't like want to give away any of the secrets, but doing his thing. And then it was coming back to me. So I basically was having two sets of the same instruments, the ones they were as they were being played. And then the ones that were coming from Derek after I sent them to him. And then I would have to take, figure out per per artist like what was the proper mix of like hearing what they're playing as they press it and hearing what Derek's doing to it in order for them to get the best performance and then you start to get latency issues uh with like trying to balance out the timing so that everything comes together at the same time so that things don't get off of the rhythm and the beat and you start to get a lot of computers involved in that and so then you have to network all of those things together in a way to communicate you know, and then, and then you also have the talking to, to each other on top of all of that. So that, that's what was happening normally with the Pretty Lights Live Band in the Analog Future Band. And then you add into that this whole other element of the symphony, and that's where it got super challenging and fun. But without, you know, without giving away too much of the magic sauce, I think that what you're asking about is the fact that it wasn't just traditional. You play an instrument, it comes to the soundboard, then, then the soundboard sends it to the the monitors for you to hear it there was also that added addition of i'm now sending it to derek to to drop his his sauce on and send back to me and the band needs to hear that as well and and making all of those things work together so it wasn't a tool like you can't go like go to the store and be like i'd like the pretty lights Whit hawkins monitor tool please it was just it was more of a system uh utilizing existing technology and and integrating them together in ways that really hadn't been done at least that we were aware of well, what if I wanted to pay for the Wit Hawkins Pretty Lights tool? Because and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you're a little bit more on the jam scene than I am. But I think I've noticed some bands you can pay a little bit extra to be able to hear what they are, what they say to each other. Like you can be like wired into their microphones or something. Would would you ever consider doing that? Unless that's not something that's done. I've definitely considered doing that. Like um, I think you're talking about like the Umphreys McGee thing yes, where yes. they give you an pack. I would pay for that. I'm just letting you know. I would pay a lot of money for that. Yeah, I've thought about doing that a lot. I've thought about like giving away a VIP package to the Hawks Nest where like you have a stool and a cooler beer and you can come sit next to me and listen to the in-ears from the side of the stage. So in for that. <laughs> That's all like, um, 
that's overstepping the bounds a little bit on my side because it's not my concert and like it's not my place to say hey artists i'm gonna let people hear what you're doing that's up to them a hundred percent and that doesn't mean it hasn't been floated before but it's never really you know it's not my choice i can't i can't i cannot give away the sauce unless the artist wants you to see how the sausage is made and i think there's value in that to some extent but it's not something that we've done yet and and, I, and there's also a whole team of people behind me that make all that stuff happen too. Uh, my boy, Chris Bargy, who I hire for everything I possibly can is like the audio wizard. Like I, I can do all of that audio stuff, but like I'm so much more involved directly with the artist and coming up with the stuff to do and how we're presenting it and things that I don't like. I'm like, okay, here's my diagram that I want it to work like this. And he's like, all right, cool. And, and does it and plugs it in for me, you know, and there's a whole team of audio people that, that do that stuff. We have what I call, I like to call Apollo 13 moments a lot with Derek, which is in the movie Apollo 13 when they are stuck and they're like, we have to build a system to get them back into the gravitational pull using only what they have on the ship. And the guy comes into the room and he's like, this is what they have. And he dumps the big tub full of, you know, space, uh, spaceship stuff on the table. And they're like, figure out using this, how to make this happen. That happens a lot with Derek where it's like, he, he's, he's such a prolific artist in terms of not just the quantity of stuff that he puts out when he like, or creates, but also he's always thinking about, uh, everything involved with the process and he'll be like, I want to do this. Here's the thing I want to do. And he'll look at me and be like, can we do that? And I have to be like, yes or no. And a lot of times he gets me so amped to do it. I'm like, yeah, we can do it. And then I go back to the drawing board and I'm like, that's tomorrow. Like the show's tomorrow. And we like, normally I would order all these pieces and put it together. I'm like, Nope, we've got this, like what's in the toolbox. Let's figure out how to make it happen. Uh, And so it's good to have a whole team of people to help you think through that process. Many a late night have been spent, going, okay, well, we have to get from point A to point B and we, we don't have the tools that you would normally have or this, this concept's never been done. How do we like create the pieces we need to make that happen? So Apollo 13 moments, they're always challenging and a lot of fun. That sounds like a fun way to tour. I mean, it can be fun, but it can also be the worst, like absolutely nerve wracking. There's definitely some something to be said for being able to go put the show up and do it the same way, at least technically, if not musically every night, you know, and very rarely did that happen. Very rarely, even down to like his setup on stage, it was constantly evolving. Bass Nectar's too, to some extent, not nearly as much as far as the gear, but it's functionality. And it was a lot of fun, but after, you know, you say you're, two weeks into a run and you're like, I would really just love to plug this in the way we designed it and not have to redesign it today. (laughs) There's definitely value in that too. How do you feel about the transition of some of these artists, like pretty lights and bass nectar are the examples in my head of their transition from touring to special events. I think they both kind of went in that direction. So if you were part of those talks, what, what was that like? Um, That was more managerial stuff and agent stuff more so than than a, a crew level artistic level decision really that was like the artist and the management and the agents working it out um i do know that once those decisions were made or the way that they were initially being discussed as far as my involvement it was like if we do our own things as opposed to um night after night after night and being in a bus and going everywhere it does allow you a, a sort of freedom to design things more specifically for that experience 
and put realize more of your intention for each specific area. Whereas when you're on the tour, you have to be like, can I get this in the truck and can I get to the next city and can I fit it on the next city stage? Um, whereas if you're designing things for specific destination events or whatever you want to call them, that it gives you more of the freedom to design for those things and you can realize more of your intent from a production standpoint. I was just going to ask you just like a curiosity question is you're talking about, you know, the issues of having to get, you know, a stage designed to multiple stages. So I know a lot of people have multiple stage builds, you know, just for different size stages. What's the most you've ever had to work with before? The, the most, uh, as far as what I'm, I don't follow the question. I'm sorry. Like how many times have you had to come up with different versions of a stage design for a certain tour? Cause I mean, all the artists you work with have really big productions and you know, some of these clubs are a little bit smaller. So I imagine you got to run into issues with that at some point. Totally. I think that, I think I've always sort of had three designs in the pocket at once. Some of them I've been more involved in than others, but there's always like the a rig. This is the ideal rig. And then here's one. Oh, we can't fit it in there. Here's the B rig you know, and then here's the C for the really intimate places. And you think about that before you go into the show, like as you're designing it, you know, the venues specs and you know, roughly like where you're sit, what venues you're playing. So you always sort of design with that sort of stuff in mind. And I don't do a ton of the like lighting and video design. I'm involved from a production manager standpoint on a lot of that stuff. As far as can we fit it in budget and, um, can we fit it in the truck and like get finding the right vendor relationship and like lending my, you know, my thoughts on the creative side of it, but especially with the, with like pretty lights, like that's all Greg and Phil, they do the majority of that stuff. But like with sector nine now I'm more involved with a lot of that. And I know we just did I say just we haven't played shows in forever. It was the last like tour tour they did. It was the Apollo tour and it was, on purpose, a lot of underplays, like smaller rooms to give it a more intimate feel on purpose. That's kind of the vibe they're after. So we really had to scale down the level of production that they and the fans were used to, but still deliver that sort of impact. So there was a lot of um, talks with their lighting designer, Tiberius, Vincent, and the band and myself um, and, and some of our vendors and figuring out what fixtures would sort of have the same impact with less power, you know, we didn't have the same power in all these places that you normally have at some of these bigger shows. Um, I think that one was in recent memory. One of the ones that was more challenging for me because there was such an expectation set of the level of production that you people are used to from sector nine versus what was possible in these venues. And we still had the, to deliver on that vision. Um, so we, not only did we have come up with an AB and a C design, but we also came up with like, there was a room that we designed it specifically for that room and made sure that like the size base plates we got for the trust towers, like wouldn't go onto Jeffrey's carpet, you know, like, because it was that tight. And so we designed something specifically for that room using what we had designed in the A, B and C rig before. So is your role or your title is, I can't believe I'm asking you this an hour in, but is it officially like a production manager? Is that, is that what it is? It seems like you do so much. I wear a lot of hats and in the majority of the teams that I've been with, everyone has a title or a role, but there's never, luckily there's rarely ever, that's not my job. Everyone sort of is like, Oh cool. I can help with that or pitch in to do this because it's truly is it gets to be a family after a while. But my my official title, quote unquote, changes depending on who it is I'm working with. Like with with Sector Nine, I'm the production manager. 
with Pretty Lights. I'm the I'm the monitor engineer and technical assistant to Derek. Um, you know, with Bass Nectar, I was the monitor engineer and the production manager for a while, and then I stopped being the production manager and was sort of more of a technical backline assistant, designing his equipment as well as a monitor engineer. Um, sometimes with Lettuce, I'm just the stage manager. You know, I with Hawks Nest, I also have managerial clients where I'm their manager, which is not have to do with like the concert. It does have to do with the concert experience, but it's a different role. Like their full on manager, um, Daily Bread, I manage is um one of them that you may know from the pretty lights realm yeah definitely but to answer your question i wear a lot of different hats and you can put a title on whatever you you want to but for me if i'm involved with the project it's something that i learned from my dad and my grandfather before him especially since i'm the third um is that if you put your name on something it needs to be the best it can possibly be and you need to give it your best effort and for me, that means that just because it's, I may not be the, you know, the video tech, you know, that's not my title. That doesn't mean I can't learn how to plug in the video panel or troubleshoot it when it goes out. And if I can go assist it, go do it. So that's part, sometimes that ends up being a lot of work for me. <laughs> I don't intend for it to be, but I, that's the way I feel about anything that I put my name or Hawk's Nest on. It's like, if I'm going to give it the best of my ability. So titles don't really necessarily mean a whole lot to me as far as what the work is that I do, but they sure do make it easier to break down on paper for people. Yeah, that that's one thing I've noticed just from talking to a lot of our guests so far is that everyone wears so many different hats and people just, and I think in order to be successful and like well-liked within this industry, you really have to be able to just always lend a hand and always be willing to help. It's not like a, not my job kind of thing. That's really the vibe I've gotten from a lot of people we've talked to so far. Yeah. And I, well, and I think also the people you've talked to so far are very much a part of this scene in this culture. And like I said, that's part of the, the pervasiveness of this sort of culture is that we really truly do love it. And so if you don't put in that energy, you're not going to get that back out, you know? And so that isn't always going to be the case on your like, top 40 country tour there's probably dudes that are like this is what i do this is all i do and i don't want to deal with that which is fine and it has its merits and it gets things done to some extent and it's one way of doing things but in this particular scene it's not it doesn't get you very far and it's also you <laughs> i wouldn't suggest this career path to to anyone that isn't willing to do that that isn't willing to get their hands dirty and work hard and toil for years with no payoff as far as financial or respect you know um, to get to, <laughs> it, it takes a lot of that. It takes a, it takes a village to build something as beautiful as this. And, and if you're going to be a part of doing that, then you need to understand the facets, all the facets that go into it and be, and understand why they're equally important and figure out how you can lend a hand when you need to, for sure. And I think, I mean, that comes back to, from the fans though, like, <laughs> you know, the, the, there's a lot of, of, people in the culture and in the scene that are artists in their own right in different mediums. Uh, some of them in music, some of them create groups that we just had no idea about, you know, within it, they, they utilize the community and the positivity of the community to, to develop like stay sober groups or, or support groups or like, you know, like go out and feed the hungry, like, Hey, we're getting together in this city for these pretty light shows on the first day or on the second day in the afternoon before the doors open, like let's all get together and go work at the food bank, you know? Um, 
And I think that you find that in a lot of the culture. Some people will be like, oh, I need help with this. Oh, I know a guy in the scene that does that. And they're always, oh, you're a Pretty Lights fan? You're part of PLF? Yeah, man, I can totally help you do that. So I think it sort of, you know, is reflected in the culture. That is literally one of my, like, initial character assessments I'll make off meeting, like, a random PLF person. I'm like, or if I see him on Facebook, I'm like, oh, like, you're in PLF and we have 10 mutual friends. Like, we're probably going to get along because you're probably an all right person. Right. Totally. Yeah, we've let strangers stay in our house before just because they were pretty lights fans. Totally. I literally drove two strangers from Syracuse to Colorado for Red Rocks in 2018. God bless you. That's a long drive. Hell yeah. That's what it's about. Though. They were bugging. They were like, fuck, like we don't have a ride. And I was like, hey, like if you can get from Philly to Cuse, I fucking got you. There you go. That's what's up. Yep. Deb yeah. and Kyle, still the homies. Nice. Shout out to Deb and Kyle. Shout out. It was just, I mean, it was a pilgrimage. It felt like that just had to be made, that Red Rock show. That adds so much more to the the value of the show, too. It a is a bazillion like percent. Paid your ticket dollar and went and saw the show and went home. It's like, now, not only do you have the concert experience, but you have that journey that you took to get there. And now you've made two lifelong friends out of it. And that's, there's so much that's beautiful about that. And that you don't. Absolutely. You know, going to see a Toby Keith show. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. that's where like there's part of me it's like a lot of my driving has been just you know because i can't afford plane tickets most of the time but it's just something about doing that initial journey that really does heighten the overall experience yeah it's great i mean th- when you have to put in work to to get something the you appreciate what you get that much more mm-hmm. you know and i i also think too that there's a that sort of drives some aspects of us over here on this side of things. Cause it's like, we know that you guys are doing that and we've been those people for, for fish or whoever. And we understand that there's value in that. So we feel like we've got to deliver on what we, what we present and the way that we put on a show so that no penny is wasted on that journey was worth it. You know? Hey man, I got like mad props to you and like, especially the artists in this kind of realm. Cause it's just like, everything feels so full of intention. And I think that's my favorite part about this whole kind of subculture that we're all existing in. Yeah. It's super full of intention. Like sector nine as a whole, like, or, or especially early in their career, their whole deal was like the intention. They were, it was a period where they were like doing jams based off the, the Mayan calendar and whatever the sign of the day was. And it's the whole thing that I don't really want to dive into here, but it definitely cued, cued me in early to like oh their 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 intent is for us to be you know a part of this it isn't just them presenting their music there's definitely planning and intention and desire behind everything besides just the notes they're playing and then you know i definitely realized that with fish like for example in one of their limestone main uh at loring air force base festivals that they played i think three three times maybe but there was one as you entered the the festival area, there was a big arching gateway and it said over the top, our intent is all for your delight. And then it was like, that to me was like, yeah, that's exactly right. Like everything that's past these gates has intention behind it in order for you to be inspired and have a beautiful time. And I was like, yes, that, I want to do that. I want to give that back to people. And it's really like, just like with any art, you know, per se, whether it be, you know, painting on canvas or dance or poetry or whatever it is, whatever your medium is, there's always some intent behind what the artist is doing, right? 
and it doesn't necessarily mean that every time it has to be, I'm trying to evoke this emotion. Certainly that happens sometimes, but you can leave things open for interpretation, but there's, there's rarely do people approach whatever their canvas is and just go, okay, let's flip a switch and see what happens today. There's always some notion, sometimes much more than others, but there's some nugget of intent there um, with any sort of art form. And I think that to go back to circle all the way back to the beginning to do dope shit with your friends. That's like, that's my, my intent is <laughs> I want to do stuff that I would find in, that I would be inspired by if it were presented to me. And I want to do it in a really cool way with my friends because that's what the value in all of this is to me. Hell yeah. I love that. Is that mentality what inspired you to start Hawk's Nest music? I was curious to hear more about that. Cause I know it's fairly recent, right? Sure. It's like um, two and a half years old. I guess basically I had started, I'd been touring in bands and bands, you know, for a long time. And then we started Music Matters Productions with Smalley and Serrero and Shouts to Music Matters are still doing amazing work out of Atlanta, by the way. And so I'd started a business before, but didn't learn a lot about the business side of it. Was just sort of given the keys and going, this is really cool what you're doing. Let's see if we can't turn it into a business. And then from there, that that grew into doing stuff with Bass Nectar and doing stuff at major festivals and branching out and networking and working with Derek. And when Derek took uh, a break, he came right after I had had uh, uh, my first and only child, right? Whose name is Hawk, hence the name of the company. But the the impetus behind that was I've been I've been utilizing this skill set and this network and this passion and this artistic drive and these engineering skills in service of someone else's vision for so long that I was like, I want to be able to do it in service of my vision. Right. And then I was, I had to really figure out what my vision was. And because I had just had the kid, like it really shifts your perspective on everything. Right. So now I'm a father and that's my first priority before anything else. And so my vision then became to continue to have a career doing dope shit with my friends, but in a way that, didn't keep me on the road 200 days a year, right? So the goal behind Hawksness was to sort of have the touring side of everything be the bread and butter while I spent a few years developing the managerial side and the record production side uh, and maybe like releasing things on Hawksness and other things that I could do from home, like from the office um, and less on the road in a tour bus so that I didn't miss my kid's life really. And I knew that, you know, that sort of kicks in when they're five ish, like the first three or four years, like sure. He's got these dance lessons and football lessons and things, but he's not on a traveling team. He doesn't need me to coach him. He's not like, you know, putting on giant performances that I can't, that I feel like I would be missing out on if I was gone all the time. Obviously I still want to be home. Um, But that was the impetus behind doing that was, how do I slowly pivot away to where I don't have to be gone all the time so that I can be a father? That's good. That's super important, man. Now, my question for you tagging off that is, do you think you'd want your child to be involved in the business someday? Is that an intention of yours? I'm And my dad told me, do whatever cranks your tractor, man. Like <laughs> that's the, which is, you know, the same way to the old, Confucian is saying that, which it's debated whether or not Confucius actually said this, but we're going to go with it. He said, you find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That one, both of those things really stuck with me, right? So I'm definitely going to allow the kid to be exposed to 
the industry and the music and all that. And he's obviously going to have a front row seat that a lot of people aren't going to have, you know, like he, he has the same birthday as Adam Deitch. And for some reason, Deitch feels like an extra connection with him because of that. So whenever I work with Deitch or he's in the area or I'm down in Denver, like I bring the kid along and like he sits down and plays drums with him and gives him like a little drum lesson. And the kid's got like a little trap kit up in the corner of his bedroom and bangs it out. He's got signed drumsticks from tons of different drummers. So some of that mojo is going to have to wear off. So am I going to desire it for him to be in the industry? If it makes him happy, then absolutely. If it doesn't, that's cool. Find what cranks your tractor and do that. And I'll support it and expose it as long as you're, you know, not hurting yourself or other people. Do you. Um, I, if he does decide to be in this industry, I'm going to give him every opportunity that I can as a father would, you know, utilizing my network and skill sets. But I'm also going to let him know it's, it's really hard. It's not like you go get a degree in this and then boom, you're placed in an internship and in five years you work your way up. Like it doesn't work that way, you know? And so if he wants to be in, he's going to be in for the long haul. But there's no, I have no intention for what I want my child to be other than whatever makes him happy. It's beautiful, man. Speaking of, it is almost his bedtime. I've just oh. been in by the way. <laughs> cool. Well, we won't keep you. I mean, unless you have anything else you want to, unless you have anything else you want to say. You know, I, I actually just want to say thank you guys for putting this together and like shedding some light on what goes on over here and giving people on this side an outlet to talk about it. I know it's often time goes unsung and we appreciate that. And I know that there's curiosity on the other side as to what happens over here. So thank you guys. And thank you to all the fans out there that put their intent and energy into, you know, building and being a part of this community and allowing us to do what we do because we couldn't do it without you. And I, I'm just so grateful and so blessed to, to, to have people that do that, that like support the things that we're doing so that I can wake up every day and go, what do I get to do today with my friends? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole intent of this podcast as well. Yeah, for sure. You guys are killing it. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're, th- we're so thrilled that we were able to have you on here. So th- thank you so much again for your time and for sharing all those amazing stories. This was so much fun. I learned so much. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Much love. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. And I have to say, I just think it's hilarious that back in the day, someone had to convince Lauren, aka Base Nectar, to do multiple night runs. Oh, yeah, I'm glad that that broke into the EDM scene in more so than doing the same set two nights in a row, looking at you flux pavilion circa 2013. Yeah. That's something I'm really grateful to, to wit for. And this, it really just seems like there's this whole group that came from the fish culture and just brought everything that they liked from it. And I'm really just so grateful for that because I've had just so many profound and transformative experiences that I'll remember for the rest of my life. And that actually brings me to a quote that I wanted to share with you guys from this book that I read when I was developing um, the concept of this podcast on my end. It's called The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. I highly recommend it. It takes you through a lot of the different rave communities in different cities in the United States. And it had this brief but specific passage that our conversation with Wit reminded me of. So I wanted to share that with you all because I think it gives us some context about how we got here, which is one of the things that we want to learn more about with this podcast. So this passage is from a chapter about Coachella. 
The rapidly hybrid nature of jam bands meant they'd inevitably adopt electronic dance methodology. One of the first to do so was Philadelphia's Disco Biscuits, formed in 1995, whose guitarist, John Gutwillig, prefers to call his band's music transfusion, though it's better known by an uglier phrase, jamtronica. Side note, I don't really think jamtronica is that ugly, but guess this guy does. It, it does sound a little bit dressed down from transfusion. Maybe we should bring that back. I had never heard that before. I was reading this book. That's what my first like thought of the Disco Biscuits were. I was like, whoa, it's like a trance jam band. And I, you know, I had never seen trance artists live. Yeah, trance is one of the few electronic genres that I haven't really immersed myself in yet. So it's tough for me to draw parallels personally. And I'm just going to jump around a bit here. So Sound Tribe Sector 9, STS9, came along in 1998. Gutwillig made a key distinction between his audience and that of older jam bands. Biscuits and STS-9 fans were not just younger, but coming in from outside the usual circuits. He says, I figured everybody's seen a lot of fish shows, but not these kids. These kids, when fish quit, they were 12. They were listening to G-rated Christina Aguilera. An exception was Ben Silver, who met the Biscuits when he booked them at UW-Madison in March 1999. He says, I saw fish everywhere. I was really into electronic music, and the Disco Biscuits were kind of both, says Silver, now in Chicago DJ Trio Orchard Lounge. And then uh, skipping down a little bit, though Jerry Garcia's 1995 death meant a hippie influx into the rave scene, the two worlds had little overlap outside the West Coast. Bisco showed the way. The more entrenched jam festival scene was forced to adapt, booking an increasing number of glitch hop unto dubstep acts nurtured by Burning Man, as well as a number of electronic heavy gatherings aimed at the jam crowd. And it really just makes me think about what Wit was talking about, about how he was kind of on the brink of STS-9 and the Disco Biscuits blowing up. And it was really just so beautiful to hear him talk about how he came full circle with witnessing the explosion of that culture. And now he's like the production manager for STS-9. It's so cool. So, so awesome to just hear someone personifying that concept that I had read in, in a book like last year. Wow, that's really cool. What a great find. Yeah, I definitely highly recommend it. Go to your local bookstore if you're interested in buying it. Don't get it on Amazon. <laughs> Fuck you, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> well, 2021 is kind of a year that, I mean, I feel like it's even more uncertain than the typical new year when you're going into it, looking down the barrel from January 1st. But I'm looking back still kind of fondly on 2020 because as much of a dumpster fire of a year it was in a lot of regards, there's some really cool things about how our music scene adapted to this global pandemic and how artists performed and we got to see them in our living rooms and you know maybe you got to zoom with your friends and watch sets however you did it that way so i mean what are some of your favorite streams that you saw elizabeth do you have anything that really blew you away in 2020 from certain artists yeah one of my favorites was when i was watching the base coast pixel festival the virtual festival that they did um, when they weren't able to have it this year and it's where I found my favorite artist discovery of this year, Lazy Syrup Orchestra. They managed to film this set somewhere in British Columbia. It's a beautiful backdrop. Um, they have a bunch of different live instruments. They had a, a flutist. They had a trumpet player. They were all over the map. It was just this really cool like live DJ set of all different kinds of electronic music. So after, after I was exposed to them, I really just took a deep dive through all of the other sets that I could find on SoundCloud. That's awesome. It reminds me of just stumbling upon an artist like you would at a normal festival. Yeah, exactly. So it's funny that a virtual festival was still able to curate that experience somehow. Yeah, some of that same music magic we all love. 
Um, for me, there was a couple I really liked. You know, I think one of my favorites was probably Jade Cicada's little ambient set he did. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Ugh, it was just such a nice evening. I remember just like I was just feeling very good and just relaxed. And it was beautiful, you know, and it was, uh, he didn't play any of his own music. So it was just putting on a bunch of tunes and from people I have never heard of, you know, so it was, it was really cool to hear like that side of electronic music because I just, I love down tempo stuff. I think it's my go-to most of the time. And that was really cool. And then Artifacts had a really cool sunset mix. I'm a big Artifacts fan. So I was really happy to see him do something too. And then... Closey had some really good ones. I think the Shambaroo one she did, we actually saw when we were in New York City together. That's right. Yeah, that was a lot of fun for the, I mean, the set was great. And then also like we were hanging out. So that was really cool. I remember like all of our friends were there. We're all hanging, partying. And then, you know, same with Mark Farina, that live stream. I remember just having so much fun dancing on their little rooftop patio, listening to Mark Farina with mainly just you and Ethan. Carl was there too, sometimes. (laughs) Also have to shout out all of the daily bread, bed and breakfast mixes. Those were, or I guess that he calls them bread and breakfast. Yeah, that was fire too. That was a good way to kick off the ne- that next morning. Yeah, I also loved Fortet's set at uh, the Digital Lightning in a Bottle Festival. That one was really good too. Ooh, I missed that. Some of them are up on their YouTube channel. That one isn't, unfortunately, but Random Rabs is and Mr. Carmax is as well. And I was really surprised that I liked Mr. Carmax and I had just formed... A judgment about him having like no concrete evidence. I had just never seen him live, and for some reason, I was like, "Yeah, not really my style." But I really liked his set. I was re- very pleasantly surprised. It's it's a little trappy, which isn't always my favorite, which is probably why I had that assumption. But like that is the kind of trap I like. So is that why you were a little dismissive of it earlier? Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly why. Because mm. I, I was I kind of went through my trap phase. I think a lot of people did. You guys might know what I'm talking about. There was trap got kind of big in like 2013. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like Flostradamus, were they trapped? And like Carnage. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, really, really enjoyed Mr. Carmack's set this year. Pleasantly surprised. Yeah, Mr. Carmack is awesome. You would like him if you saw him live too. He's played the Westcott a couple of times and it's it's always been so much fun. Yeah. And shout out to SDS9 for releasing so much free content this year. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. they released, I think, one set a day from each show that they played in 2019. And I remember like really trying hard to catch up with it. And I was like, I'm going to become like a super STS9 fan because whenever I see them, I always have this experience where like I recognize the melody, but like cannot name the song for the for the life of me. And it always kind of like yeah. bugs me out a little bit because I'm like, oh, I know what this is. So I tried I tried to become an STS9 fan. And as much as I love them after two weeks, I was like, I need a break. I hear you. It's funny you bring up that sensation of, you know, that what is this song? Because it's something we talk about in our next episode with Brett Shredmans, who is a P.L.O.G., and one of our dearest homies, and, you know, it's, we talk about it then, but it is just that sensation of, you know, when there's no words, like, what do you, what do you have to tie on to a song, you know? Like, I'm the same way with Lotus when I was first getting into them. I was like, I don't know what this song is called, but I know it's like, and then I eventually learned it was called, what is that song called? I guess I haven't learned. Damn. (laughs) What about albums? Did you have a favorite album from this year? 
So, I mean, I feel like I didn't listen to a ton of new albums this year. I did, like, a, a real backwards dive and just listening into music from, like, the past. But I know, you know, Emancipator, his album Mountain of Memory, was definitely one of my favorite new things that came out. I also spent a lot of time listening to the same album over and over again, which is the Free Nationals debut album called Free Nationals. But it came out last year in 2019, so it doesn't really count. But I played it a lot this year. And if you're unfamiliar, it's um, Anderson Pack's housing band that's helped produce like his first three or four albums he made, but just them doing their own thing. And it's just so groovy. It's like L.A. kind of sound and feeling of yesteryear done with like some modern twists. And it's really well done. It's a great album. So if you're ever into just kind of vibing out, listen to some cool tunes, check out the Free Nationals. What about you? What'd you listen to? Mountain of Memory was my favorite album as as well. And I have that sensation with it that I do with with Pretty Lights, where every time I listen to it, I hear something a little bit different or like my relationship with the song grows a little bit. And I, I can't choose a favorite for the life of me. It's tough to choose with Emancipator albums, though, because like all of his songs are just so good and so special in their own way. Like, I feel I can't I don't even know if I have like a top five for that album because I really just enjoy everything that's on it so much. Yeah, I felt I felt so bad that he wasn't able to do his his tour this year. And I really hope that um he he does something to celebrate such a wonderful album whenever we're able to return to live music. And I honestly can't believe that he's never been nominated for a Grammy. Like, what the fuck? I know it's disrespectful and there's a whole lot to say about the institution of the Grammys themselves because they'll never recognize real good music like that and it sucks (laughs) but we all know it and that's what counts yeah and another one of my favorite albums this year was from a Grammy nominee Lettuce Um, I think they came out with Resonate this year and that is just a fantastic album that's true I take Take back my previous statement. They got it very right with Lettuce. Well, you know, the problem is, though, is that these these artists don't win. Like, I don't think Lettuce yeah. won. And, like, Derek, a.k.a. Pretty Lights, didn't win when he was nominated in 2013. That's tough, though, you know? Like, Daft, that Daft Punk album could have been, like, a steaming pile of garbage. But it just because it's Daft Punk, I think it just carries that much more weight. And then it happened to also be a good album. But, damn, I feel like our boy got snubbed. Yeah. For sure. And then other great content that Loki Records produced, which is Emancipator's label, was they had this awesome rotating curated playlist on Spotify. I don't know if you had a chance to tune into those at all, but like Closey curated a playlist and Edamame did. And I think Frameworks might have all of these like great artists that are on his label. Or I mean, I know Closey isn't, but I'm glad that she did one anyway. But that was a really good curated playlist. And I found a lot of music that I really like from it. So what we'll do for you guys is we'll we'll link these for you in our show notes. So please go take a look at that if you're interested. And we'd actually love to hear from you about what your favorites of 2020 were. So if you'd like to do that, all of this information is also in the show notes. But you can reach out to us at almostfamiliarpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on our social media channels like Almost Familiar Pod on Instagram and Almost Familiar on Facebook. So. Thanks again for listening, everybody. You know, from the bottom of our hearts, we really do appreciate it. And this has been a project that's just brought so much joy. And we can't believe we're ha- it's, it's happening. And we're just very glad you're on this journey with us. And we'll see you next week with next week's guest, Brett Shredmans. And to end this episode, we're going to play out the full witness break from the Tell You Ride 2015 show with Pretty Lights and the Analog Future Band, now that we took some time to get familiar with the context and meaning behind this song. 